Our apologies, but the first two and a half minutes of the audio of this class are very horrible, and then it gets better. Thanks for your patience. Um, so last week, we talked about a lot of, about how we played Jeopardy, and I, I failed because I didn't say what is. And um, yeah, but we talked about there's a lot of things we don't know about the Book of Job, like author date, setting, time period, the meaning of the word, the name Job, where us is. Uh, that sounds funny, as is. Um, but but it, and there's a lot of answers we're not going to get as well. We talked about that, how we would like to know the answer to why bad things happen to good people and know all the answers of why things happen to us, etc., but we're not going to find those out. Um, there are things we're going to learn, like we do learn a bit about how God works in this world. Um, we learn how we should react to things that happen to us, kind of. Uh, we also learn it's okay to have emotions about God when bad things happen. Uh, and, as, and I indicated that contrary to the book's title, this book is not really about Job. It kind of uses his as an example to teach some lessons about God, and that's what the book's really about. As the title of the class might indicate, God on trial. <clears throat> it's not Job on trial. And as a side note, I talked last week about how the about the genre of Job and how to me this really feels like a, a wisdom parable as opposed to a historical account of what happened. And I, I think that that doesn't really matter one way or the other to the, the core message of the story. I think it matters for some of the stuff along the way. But um, and we'll get it, get to that. But just so you know, that's uh, if you want to talk about that some other time, like in depth, we can do that. But just I will be approaching Job as a as a parable, and uh, and I think that has some impact. We'll, we'll see some of that today as well. <clears throat> so today we're going to start going through the story of the book of Job. And I, uh, last week I thought I was planning to do just kind of a hit the high points of the story of the book f- for this class. But the more I got into preparing the, the lesson, I'm like, I'm not even going to get through chapter one. Um, and I, I don't I don't plan on. You know, like I said, I'm not going to make the whole way through the book. Uh, we're going to get through the, about the first chapter today. And I'm not planning to go on the, the book like chapter by chapter, So, because there's a lot of it that can very much be summed up by some guys say some stuff about things. And, um, but I wanted to really focus on the, uh, the first couple characters mentioned in the book, because I think it's really important. So the book is roughly divided into about five sections. The prologue, which is chapters one through three. Um, there's three speech cycles between Job and his friends, and see, he's got three friends that come to sit with him, and so there's, each cycle is like him, like friend says something, Job replies. Friend says something, Job replies for every friend, and then that happens three times. The third one, the last guy doesn't get to say something, but um, I don't, I'm not sure why. But Then the, cent- the central part of the book is... Um, Chapter 28, it's kind of a, the narrator, it's not really anybody in the book, it's just kind of the narrator doing a poem about wisdom, more or less. Um, and then there are three monologues, Job, Elihu, and God say something, and then there's an epilogue. <clears throat> and um, if any of you have ever been in any one of Jim Whitfield's classes, you've heard about a chiasmus. This has a chiastic structure as well. And which the point of that is that it tends to point to the thing in the middle. And so chapter 28 
is something to uh, focus on, and we'll do that later. But it's really important to the whole meaning of the book. Uh, and I'm a, I'm a very big believer in trying to understand the Bible through the lens of people who wrote it and received it first, because I think that so much of any writing, and especially the Bible, is core, the culture of that time and the, and the writing is, is really important, because there are things that culturally are done and said that we're going to miss aspects of the, the meaning if we don't understand those things. And so understanding the world of the, pers- the people who received the book, the better we're going to understand the message of the book. Um, and so as, as we go through this book, I'll be pointing out a lot of connections and similarities to the culture and the literature of Mesopotamia in the ancient time. Um, and we, so we just kind of have to do our best to not read in our own cultural assumptions to a lot of this stuff. Um, so the book opens up with a description of Job. We talked about the first verse last week, but I'll, we're, we're going to continue on. So we're going to talk about Job for a little bit. In the land of Uz, there lived a man whose name was Job. His, this man was blameless and upright. He feared God and shunned evil. He had seven sons, three daughters, and owned 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 donkeys, and a large number of servants. He was the greatest man among all of the people of the East. So, as I mentioned last week, the fact that he lives in the, Uz, indicate, in, in the land of Uz indicates that he's not an Israelite. And also that's emphasized by the fact that it says, of all the people of the East. And I think that's important because it kind of universalizes the story of Job a little bit. And I'll, at another class time, I'll get into, um, the, there's some fascinating stuff about us and Job and how that connects to Abraham and Moses and Noah and Jesus and Adam. Um, but we'll get that to that later. Uh, nevertheless, this this non-Israelite is seen by God as blameless and upright. Um, and very few people in the Bible are referred to as blameless and upright. I mean, that's pretty high praise from God. Can, can you think of anybody else who has been referred to as that or could be? Enoch? Enoch? <clears throat> Noah? Noah? Daniel. Yeah, Daniel? Jesus? Good. Um, yeah, so not a, it's a pretty short list. So it's, it's fascinating to me that uh, this is being said of a, a non-Israelite guy. Um, his family's, family and belongings are described in terms of perfection. Um, to almost a supernatural level. You've probably heard, we've talked about the importance of numbers, uh, like numerals, to the Jewish people. Um, like uh, 7, 3, and 12, and 5 are all very important numbers. So we had 7 sons, 3 daughters, 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 oxen, and 500 donkeys. And so the 7 is the number that's kind of used for, to symbolize completeness and good fortune and blessing. Um, 3 is the number for stability and completeness. And five is kind of the number for protection in the Jewish culture. So he's got, he's, the, he's an ideal man in every way. He's blameless and upright. His, his, his family represents completeness and blessing and stability. And his, his possessions represent 
um, uh, was a protection. So it's like everything about this guy is symbolized as perfection in every way you can think of. I mean, the, he, he even sacrifices to his, in case, after his kids have a party just in case they did something wrong. And so what, what do you think is the, the significance of this in, in, for the story that's coming up? Why, why describe him as so ideal? Yeah, if, if blessings are based off of good deeds, this guy is never going to have anything bad happen to him. Yeah. It's, it's setting him up as... It's just emphasizing how really, really, really good and um, really, he really does not deserve what's about to happen to him. Which is important for the, what the, the whole book is trying to teach in general. Is that Job does not deserve this stuff. So, I'm going to cut to, to heaven now. <clears throat> the scene in heaven is fascinating. Um, it says in Job 1.6, Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. So we're in God's court now with the sons of God. Um, some translations say angelic or angels, although this, this group's kind of different in, in the Bible than the angels, because angel, angelos in Greek means messenger. And so this, these, these are not messengers. These are folks that like seem to hang, hang out with God and like, it's kind of like his divine counsel. And that, that actually is a term. In the ancient world, a, a lot of other um, like Egyptian, Babylonian, Akkadian, Sumerian cultures, this kind of a, this idea of a, a scene in heaven where the gods in the pantheon in their in their religion or whatever their culture, the gods would be all around and they would discuss things and vote on things. Sometimes there was like a chief god, like Baal, would be would kind of preside over things. Um, essentially, it's a, it's it's something that gods use to delegate responsibilities, and sometimes they'd hold court on what actions to take. And this this imagery of a divine council is used elsewhere in scripture. Um, in, here in Job and in chapter 2, 1 Kings 22, I, when, I, when I was doing this research for this class, I don't remember ever reading this section in 1 Kings 22, and it kind of broke my mind a little bit. Um, the prophet Micaiah, which I had forgotten about, Micaiah says, Therefore, hear the word of the Lord. I saw the Lord sitting on his throne with all the multitude of heaven, standing around him on his right and his left. And the Lord said, who will entice Ahab into attacking, into attacking Ramoth-Gilead and going to his death there? One suggested this, and another suggested that. And finally, a spirit came forward, stood before the Lord, and said, I will entice him. By what means, the Lord asked. I will go out by, and be a deceiving spirit in the mouths of all his prophets, he said. So you will succeed in enticing him, said the Lord. Go and do it. Now the Lord has put a deceiving spirit in the mouth of all these prophets of the Lord, of yours, and the Lord has decreed disaster for you. Is, does anybody remember that story? That's that's weird to me. I'll just be honest with you guys. The, God is it's like with His counsel and saying, "What are we going to do, everybody? How are we going to mess th- things up for Ahab and kill him?" And God and a spirit's like, "I'll be the deceiver." It's it's weird. So that's a kind of a class for another time to figure that one out a little bit. But um, 
and I'm sure there's a lot more to it than I'm, that there's, I'm sure there's context and stuff I'm not getting into. But um, Zechariah 1 has this image of um, writers going out into the world, learning things and coming back to God and reporting what's going on, just like we have in, here in uh, Job 1. Isaiah 6 kind of uh, references when Isaiah is looking at the throne room of God, he's got the host around him. And Psalm 82 also mentions this kind of a thing. So what, what I, it's kind of an opinion in my part here. What I think we have is another tie-in that the Old Testament does often with the culture at the time. Um, here's a, a couple, like I mentioned, uh, other cultures around the world. This is a, a, a relief of a divine council in the Babylonian world. And um, got another one in, in Babylon. And I think what he's doing here, and these are divine council representations in the area around where Job took place. I think what he's doing is he's relating an image of divine authority that everyone in the culture would have immediately caught and understood what was going on. I don't necessarily think that this is how things work in heaven. Once again, I think since this to me is a parable... I don't think this is describing that God like has people coming and reporting. I mean, God knows what's going on. I, that's, once again, opinion. I think what, what's going on here is that the author is using commonly held beliefs in, that the people would understand to get a point across instead of describing exactly how things work. Because the exactly how things work is not the point. The point is what's being set up and what the story is going to be teaching. And that's very much... A, an Eastern Jewish way to teach things. It's less concerned with every single thing in the story being a fact and more concerned with getting the story across. Uh, I mean, we, we do this with our kids all the time, if you think about it. Like, I knew a family in Colorado Springs who their son was young and he couldn't really understand the concept of minutes and hours and stuff. And so when he said how his favorite show was Dragon Tales... And uh, he, they, he's like, how long is it going to take? And they said, about an hour. And he's like, how long is an hour? And they're like, it's like three dragon tails. And he's like, oh, that I get. Um, so I, that, I think that's kind of what's going on. Um, it's the same thing in, in Genesis 1 when God is describe, describing the, the creation, talking about the firmament, which means a solid dome, and pillars of the earth, which there are not pillars underneath the earth. I mean, he's... That's the way that people thought of the world at the time. And instead of God getting into the science and saying, this is how this works, he's like, I'm describing something that you'll understand. Yeah. Well, it kind of reminds me of Paul speaking about the unknown God. He really used what they understood. Yeah. To teach them something. Yeah, he didn't say all your gods are, are bunk. He's like, Here, there's an unknown God that you didn't know about, and I'm going to tell you about him. Um, it's like, it's a teaching style. It's a a way to get things across. Um, So, back to heaven. Um, The members of the divine council come before God, and apparently to give reports on what they've been up to, um, just just like back in uh, Zechariah chapter 1. And we can assume God has asked or will ask the other members of this council what they've been up to. But we're only given the dialogue between um, Satan and God. And so it says, The Lord said to Satan, From where have you come? Satan answered to the Lord and said, From going to and fro on the earth. 
and walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? Have you blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased the land? You, but you stretch out your hand and touch all he has. But, but stretch out your hand and t- touch all he has and he will curse you to his face. To your, to your face, sorry. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. So I titled this class, God on Trial. And this is really where the trial begins. Um, In the ancient world, just like in our culture, when there was a trial, there was a prosecutor and a defendant. Um, So what, what is the job of a prosecutor in general? Other than to prosecute, that's cheating. You can't say that. Huh? To accuse. Yeah, to, to what? To seek justice. To put a case against the defendant. Usually it's, it's the state or the, the, the government that has the, is the accuser saying, you did something wrong and the defendant has to prove that they did not do the thing wrong. So who's the accuser in this trial? Satan, and who's the defendant? God. And this, this whole scene being set up as a divine council, it kind of this, this divine council becomes a trial when the prosecutor shows up. So I want to talk about the prosecutor. Um, this, nothing against lawyers. But the prosecutor is referred to as Satan. <laughs> um, so who exactly is this prosecutor? The, the word here in Hebrew is Satan. And Satan is just a regular Hebrew word that means challenger, adversary, opposer, or accuser. Um, it, it doesn't really, it can be used as a noun or a verb. The person can accuse or be an accuser. Um, but interestingly, it has no connotation of evil at all uh, in, in the Bible. Um, yet, thanks to Western traditions, none of our English translations actually translate the word here given for this prosecutor. What they do is they transliterate it to Satan. They kind of just take the little accent off the top, not the, 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 what we put there when we write it in, in English letters. Um, so they transliterate it Satan, give it a capital S, like a proper noun. And, however, in Job and most of the Old Testament, every time that word is used, it has the definite article the in front of it, which is also not translated. And so it's ha-satan, the Satan, the, the Satan. And since in Hebrew, just like in English, definite articles are not put before names, it'd be like saying the Steve or the Noah, that, that's weird. We don't do that. Um, we, we should really be looking at this word not as a proper noun, because that's not what it is. It's not a name for somebody named Satan. Uh, it's a designation. 
Think of, think of Hasatan as a title, like prosecutor or accuser. Uh, it's, this, it's a role that someone is filling. Uh, one uh, commentary that I'm using for a lot for this refers to this as the challenger, because he's challenging God's policies for how God deals with humanity. And I think the problem we have is that by giving this person the proper name Satan with a capital S, which has become the proper name that we think of as the devil, the, the, the super bad guy, the, the king of hell or whatever, we tend to assume that this being is the devil in this story. And that has a cascade of uh, effects after that. So, I mean, you could say, sure, okay, so this is a role that somebody fills, but couldn't this be filled by the devil? Couldn't the Satan be the devil that we think of? And I guess it's possible, but I think by looking at the book of Job, there's no indication that this challenger in Job is evil or hates Job or anything of the kind. Yeah. That's that, That's actually one of the concerns that I have by calling this person the devil or thinking of this person as the devil. Because I think that... So who, who has the power in this story? God has the power. And he, God gives him the power to do this stuff. And so I think that when this is the only place that I can find where Satan really, Satan, as we quote-unquote, really has the kind of power that we tend to think of Satan having power to do things in the world physically. And I, maybe I'm wrong. Tell me if I'm wrong. I, I, but nowhere else in the Bible does Satan have the ability to go kill people and destroy places, cause tornadoes. Those are all things that God does. And even in the story... God later, um, well, I'll get to that in a minute, but uh, God later says that he's like, you incited me against Job. And so I think what's going on is that by giving this person the proper name Satan and referring to this person as um, the devil, we have given the devil more power than he has. I mean, don't, don't get me wrong. The dark powers are nothing to sneeze at. But I think that there, that this gives Satan more power than he is is warranted. Yes. It's actually a big pet peeve of mine when Hollywood makes the devil or something be able to control someone without their their own choice. <clears throat> I feel like it's a cheap trick, and I feel like we sometimes do the same thing in our lives. We think that the the devil or Satan has way more power than I think he does. I think we give him that. And I don't know that it's there. Let me get back to that in a second. Um, Because I I do have that in my notes. (laughs) Jumping ahead. Um, But I wanted to point out that this this is an often used... um, So, figure out where where was I? Threw me off. (laughs) It's fine. I appreciate it. Um, So, by looking at the boat, like, like I said, there's, there's, no, I, there's no evidence that this guy hates Job or that he's an evil being. Um, there's no tempting, there's no corrupting, there's no depraving, or there's no possessing. There's not 
things that the devil is shown to, to do in the Bible. Like when, when the devil comes to, to Jesus, he's tempting him. He's trying to sway him. He doesn't attack him. And the, the, Satan can definitely do that kind of things through people. He can influence people to do stuff. But he's not doing that at all in this book. Um, I'm not saying the devil's not a real thing. <laughs> I'm just saying I don't think that that's what's going on here. And, and God actually carries more responsibility for striking Job than the challenger in this. Um, it just doesn't seem to track with this idea of a super evil being like the devil. Um, and as far as his actions, Hasatan is simply offering an alternative explanation for Job's righteousness. He is saying, hold on, God, are you sure that he isn't righteous just because you give him stuff? Because I think if you take his stuff away, he's not going to be righteous anymore. He's not saying, please let me go attack Job and destroy his life. Um, God's the one who, re- who recommends that, I- that idea. And so I-, I think what's going on is this, this being, think of it as a, as a watchdog agency. that We have these now. That their job is to serve the general good by putting questionable decisions under scrutiny or putting policies under, under question. And I-, I think this also tracks with the idea of this trying to connect with the culture of the time and the, the, the culture in, in, around the Israelites who would have received this. Because other gods and other, in other religions at the time especially were kind of petty and kind of temperamental and did questionable things. And so it would have made sense to a person in Mesopotamia who may have read this book, maybe not an Israelite especially, to see this and go, oh, well, this is kind of the things that gods do. They get questioned on their, on their decisions. But the kicker is at the end of the book, we see that this god is nothing like the gods that they expect. I think it sets it up as it could be, but then it, the, there's a turns out at the end of it. So this word is used for humans elsewhere in the Bible as well. Um, David is referred to as Hasatan as an adversary to the Philistines in 1 Samuel 29. Um, 1 Kings 11, uh, God raises satans, like many satans, uh, against Solomon as opposers. Um, Psalm 109 mentions an accuser. It's often translated as Satan, but it it's just says ha-satan. And it's used for spiritual beings as well. Here in Job, um, Zechariah 3 Numbers 22, the angel of the Lord is called Hasatan. And in the story of Balaam, when it says, the angel of the Lord stood in the road to oppose him. And in the Hebrew it says, as, as Hasatan. Um, First Chronicles 21, where David is incited to take a census, it's also the term an adversary here, or not the proper name Satan, because Satan's not a proper name. Where it says Satan rose up to uh, Satan incited David to take a census. It's actually not saying Satan. And in the parallel passage in Second Samuel twenty-four, where uh, David is incited to take the census, it actually says God's anger incited David to take the census. It says nothing about an adversary at all. So in Job. I think, and I think a lot of other places, Hasatan should really be translated instead of transliterated. I think that's always a good idea. Translate the word. 
Um, so inst- I don't think it's Satan with a capital S. I think what it needs to be is the challenger or the accuser. And I think that reframes... I, I, I warned of breaking brains, and this is breaking my brain too. But I think that that changes the, the, some of the tone of the story of Job. I think it changes the tone of what we think is happening and who is doing the thing. Um, this accuser which is the role this person is playing. We're not given the name of this person. Uh, it's a challenger of God's policies on how he treats humanity. So why else do you think this stuff about Hasatan is important? Or is it just a word exercise, in your opinion? I mean, I, either way, it's fine. Do you have, do you have any thoughts? Yeah, David. Sorry, Nathan. Yeah, I've, I've heard the, this taught before as almost like a wager between God and the devil. Like, they kind of batten Job around like a cat with a mouse, like, just for fun. And I think that if, if, we, if we see it that way, I think, I, once again, I think that makes God kind of look petty. Like, he's just like, hey, Satan, do you see that dude down there? You should mess with him and see, you know, what's going on with him. Um, and I think that that's not what's trying to be taught here. That's not the, the, the force of what's being taught. Um, as we mentioned earlier, I think that this also, if, if we think of this person as Satan incarnate or whatever, um, we give the devil more power than he has in this world. And I think that 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 can have different impacts, but I was always afraid of this story as a kid because you read this and I'm like, well, the devil can do anything he wants to me. You know, he's got all this power. Um, but this isn't the devil. And this is a, a person in God's divine counsel in, in this parable setting up the, the, uh, the resistance of of God's policies to have this thought experiment to tell us what God is like and tell us where suffering comes from, possibly, or what, how we should react to it, really. Um, so, as I've said, if, if it's not the devil, who gives, him the, who gives him the power? And God seems to be giving him the power. It says, very well, then, everything he has is in your power, but on the man himself don't lay a finger. And in Job 2, 3... After um, Satan does this, the Satan does this stuff to Job, and Job maintains his faith in God. Uh, God says to the accuser, "He's like, see, I you you had me do this. To, you you incited me against him to ruin him for no reason. Meaning, he you didn't win your case." And, and Job suffered for nothing. 
And so, God seems to be the one who is allowing this to happen and who is even giving Job the power, to, or the Satan, the power to do this stuff. And the fact that God is the responsible party for all of this is, I think is important to how we see him and how we see suffering in our lives. Because I, as I mentioned last week, the, the things I'm going through with my health problems as small as they are compared to some things you guys are going through, I I still want to know why it happened, right? But if... I may may never never know why it happened, um, but if I... I lost my train of thought. Where was I going with that, Christy? Learn from... Yeah, sources. Yeah. If, if I, um, well, maybe I'll figure it out in a minute. Uh, where was I? I'll come back to you later. Anyway, um, I, I think that if God, it doesn't mean that God does this kind of thing to us by, by seeing this. Um, oh, that's what it was. I still know, I, I don't feel like God did this to me. Because natural things happen in the world and people get diseases. Just things happen. But I do know that he could have stopped it. He could have not allowed that to happen to me. And that's kind of what we want. We kind of expect that if I'm, if I'm following God and doing the right thing, I'm making him happy and he should make things good happen to me. And many things have happened to me that are fantastic. Um, but that, that's where it gets into what the, the accuser is really saying. And I think that by understanding that God could have stopped this and didn't stop this to, happening to me or to Job, then I think that that informs us about how God works. And, and when it gets to the end, in, in the last few chapters of the book, explaining when, when, when Job finally gets God to respond to him, because Job's like railing against God, saying, you're unjust for doing this to me. And God's like, buckle up, I'm about to tell you about myself. And I think that understanding that God was the one who, who was kind of responsible for this in the beginning, that makes much more sense in the end. And I think it makes, it's, it's a better way for us to perceive God, not as only doing the good stuff. It's, it's almost, I feel like sometimes we have this almost Zoroastrian idea of God and the devil are equal but opposite powers. God has all the good power, and Satan has an equal amount of bad power for the bad. I don't think that's what, how the world is set up. God has all the power. Satan is allowed to do things when God deems him, allows him to do things. Sometimes I think bad things happen without the devil's involvement, or anybody's involvement at all. Yeah. Yes. Um, and it, I don't know, my, God's created all of us in his image. Um, and so there's something special about all of us that, you know, animals don't have. And, um, and I think that we have tremendous potential for doing good. God's glory 
Yeah, the the first thing you said especially clicked with me. It's the, it's it's important to note how the the confidence that God has in Job, so much confidence that he even says to this prosecutor, he's like, "Hey, did you see Job down here?" I mean, God's the one who points him out, and the it it could be a testament to the the confidence he has that he allows that much bad stuff to happen to him, with the faith that in Job that Job's still not going to turn away from him. He's going to still stick with him. Yeah, David. I mean, the equal power to God, I think we should definitely be aware of that. But no power, we should be as equally concerned about that Satan has no power unless God gives it to him. Um, in, in John 12 and 14, Jesus calls Satan the ruler of this world. So there's some power to get Yeah. In Ephesians 2 and 6, Sure. Um, and then in Ephesians 6, you know, it says that our battle is against, you know, the spiritual forces. Yes. So, I mean, and the other thing about this person or Hasekman or Satan and Job, he wants the exact same thing that we see Satan wanting in the rest of the Bible. Just curse God. I want you to reject God. So, I don't know what the exact meaning is here, but I do believe that Satan has been granted some general power by God, kind of universally, from what we can see. Now, I don't, like, like I think we should, that's a whole different discussion. Right. Like, what does that mean? Right. And I do believe it's primarily spiritual, <clears throat> if I were pressed. Not necessarily the physical that we see in Job. Does that make sense? Yeah, and I, I think you're absolutely right. I, I probably go too, am going too far with this discussion right now, to, and I don't want to in, indicate that the, the devil does not have power to, to, in this world. You're right. He is, given, he is called the ruler of this earth. That's absolutely correct. Um, I mean, I'll, I, so I probably should back up a little bit and say, I just want to point out that this is not necessarily the devil that we think of. And either way, God is still the one in control. Yeah, I'm 
Yeah. Right. You know, God is, there's an ask and a, and a give. So God is still in control. God is still, in, I don't want to put them on a par either. Right. And, and, the, and I think that's kind of what, I want to make sure that we're not taking away from this that they are on par. Right. Um, I, I also, I do think it's, it's a healthy way to approach this, to go out with our belief about God and suffering in this world, to realize that God is still in control of that. And that's a hard thing to think about. We want to think about God only being responsible for the good things, not responsible for not having stopped the bad stuff. But I think that's still a valuable thing to, uh, to approach. Yeah. And then, then you... Yeah. If it's the accuser, all of the arguments that are going to be presented are arguments that I have in my own mind hmm. of what God is doing and how he presents justice. And so I think it, it hits me a little bit deeper okay. when I see the accuser is me a lot of times. Um, so, so I guess that's how it Yeah, the accuser is you. That's interesting. Yeah, and... Yeah. And I think that one, that for me, that is much more important to remember that wherever the source of suffering is coming from, my response is what um, has power. Right, and like like you said, whether whoever this being is, the the point is still what's Job's response and how what what should our response be? Real quick to close out, um, the uh, going the uh, this is the. A primary accusation, accusation the prosecutor is making when he says, does Job, God, does Job fear God for nothing? Uh, and, he, and he explains what he thinks is going on here. And the, the claim that he's making about God is that Job is only a good man because God's blessing him. And that's the key accusation of the trial is, does, does God follow the principle of just retribution or not, and if not, why not? And next week we'll talk all about what I mean by the principle of just retribution. But in other words, if God is is all-loving and all-powerful, shouldn't he reward the good and punish the bad? This is kind of a vibe that we have in our our own lives that everybody kind of feels that, like, that's why we ask, why do good things happen to bad people, bad things happen to good people? And the accuser is kind of turning that upside down and saying, why should even good things happen to good people? Is this the right way to go, God? Is this the right way to be, th- be doing things? And so next week we're going to get much more into that concept of just retribution and how we expect things to happen and how things actually happen. So thanks for your time today. <laughs>